Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to 602 with eyes of blue. Yes. Oh, 602. Tell you what's coming in today's show. We have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Yes. With a looking back at genre history. Before that, we have Andrew Rickard with an original story for Starship Sova. The Instruments of War. Narrated by Brian Rollins. There you go. That's what's coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So yes, we have Amy on, but before that we're going to jump straight into the main fiction. And like I say, Instruments of War by Andrew Rickard, who is the author who lives in the Grand Rapids, Michigan. His short fiction has appeared, or soon will be, in journals such as The Collegist, Shoreline of Infinity, Lamplight Magazine, Silver Blade and others. And the story is narrated by Brian Rollins. Brian is a voice actor and podcaster living in Colorado. You can find him audiobooks on Audible and his geek trivia podcast, DorkyGeekyNerdy.com. Drop by and say hello. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Instruments of War by Andrew Reichard. Read for you by Brian Rollins. He knew he was being watched, which was why he ignored the analog piano in the corner of the cell. It took all of his will not to touch the striped keys, but he understood that the instrument was a temptation and not a concession. He watched the wood-paneled acoustical walls with his hands clasped in his lap. He rested his old spine on the padded mattress He dreamed of sonatas decomposing themselves down florid halls. He pleaded wordlessly with an accompaniment of cameras he couldn't see. Sisigi del Bastiobel knew he was on a ship. He remembered that much. The crushing weight of thrusters against the gravity of his world. Perhaps they were negotiating a ransom. But who would pay for an old virtuoso nearing the end of his career? The piano called to him, for he didn't know how long. His mind refused to count in any mode but musical meter. Eventually, a yellow light outlined the door to his cell. Visitor. Sisigy stood when it turned red. It opened. A young man stepped in, empty-handed. Late forties, looked like, despite the bolts of silver satyr hair at his temples. The man's dress shifted Sisigy's understanding of the situation. 
the white fins on the coat shoulders that extended outward like blades super starched. The lapels trimmed in gold, not a crease on him. This man was a military officer and is perfectly dressed as a piano. A virtuoso like yourself once told me that outer space is the most exceptional of settings for music, the officer said, crossing the threshold. As soon as it reaches hard vacuum, sound vanishes. The door sensors snapped it shut behind him. Within the shell of this ship, there are no unwanted sounds from without. You can create a perfect bubble of music. The man put out his arm. Magnetic signals in his sleeve caused Syzygy's own sleeve to lift his right arm. Syzygy kept his hand limp while it was shaken and greeting. Admiral Amertortak Aktak of the hegemony of oceanic spheres. He introduced himself. Syzygy tried to sit down to catch up with the plummet of his gut, but the magnetic settings in the suit had stiffened. He hadn't known they were there. He couldn't bend his knees, couldn't slouch. Why would I want to play music for you? Amertortak didn't blink. You won't be composing for me, Sisigy del Blastiobel. Please, Sis will do. The stiff unfriendliness in his own voice gave him hope. On his homeworld, those critics who had known him for long enough still called him Sis the Spineless. It had taken him 93 years to arrive a prisoner on hegemony property in a posture-constricting suit to discover that he had, indeed, developed a spine. Sis. Amertortek purred the name through perfect teeth. You won't be composing for me, Sis. You'll be composing for the stars. When he learned there was a theophonic organ on board, Sisigy decided it was better not to scoff at Amertortek's grandiosity. The man was simply insane. The Admiral told him of it as they stepped down an empty, textured causeway, Sis was allowed to walk of his own volition, but the magnetic pressure remained on his shoulders and thighs. Even if the theophonics were real artifacts, some sort of world instrument capable of mythological music that only poets care to extemporize about, what in the void would your hegemony do with a thing like that? Sis asked, desperate to form a habit of his earlier nerve. Why do you think I invited you on board? Amertortak asked. Invited? Sis wheezed. I was kidnapped from my estate and imprisoned on board a vessel which had no jurisdiction in Daliastic orbit. Placidity fractured from Amertortak's face. Does your legal language comfort you out here, old man? I am a citizen of a free world. Sis recoiled to a crash of pain. He was no longer on his feet. The knowledge that Amertortak had struck him on the face regrouped inside of him as if he had known this would happen and had only forgotten. And other memories hemorrhaged within him, broken loose by the physical impact. Sis wondered how long he had been on this hegemony vessel, his home vanishing in the void behind him. Time incubated at the edges of his consciousness. He realized that Daliast was now so far distant, it might as well have never existed. Reason solidified into the knowledge that he had been subjected to cryosleep. 
He could, by now, be centuries distant from all he had ever known. Siz realized a low moan of panic. The suit he wore stood him back up, lifting him up like a puppet until he balanced once more, facing the admiral. Occasionally it requires a physical disruption for the mind to acknowledge the cryosleep slipstream. In my cadet days, we would ritualistically pummel each other at the terminus of a voyage. That's where the phrase, the mark of memory, comes from. Amor Tortak's smile was awful. Siz moaned again, his eyes watery. What became of Daliast? He begged for information. What business had hegemony ships in a free system? But Amor Tortak shook his head. You won't believe me that I do you a favor by withholding information, good or ill. Daliast is in your past. This is your future. The theophonic organ we have finally obtained and the virtuoso who knows how to play it. This is your story now. This is the best comfort I can offer you. Organ or no, Admiral Ammer Tortak found it impossible to impress upon his guest any further information. Six kinds of shock had assaulted Syzygy's mind, and for the first time being, that still cruel entity, the virtuoso was not useful to the hegemony. Ammer Tortak knew precisely what it took to break a human, and he had no wish to break this one. So the admiral waited while Siz intermittently slept and paced his prison. There were other places Siz could go, but he remained mostly in his room. His mind was a white wall, which had no bearing in his current reality. The void ship was, internally, an ornate jewel of real wood and sinuous corridors sensualized by bas-relief pictographs. The ship itself was likely worth more than Daliast, the entire planet, whose wealth wasn't unremarkable. But Siz saw only the white wall as he walked aimlessly, wordlessly, and the Admiral left him alone, and he encountered no other living soul in his long loneliness of ship life. Reduced gravity relieved some of the pain in his bones, but all the weight had migrated to his mind. When the Admiral finally visited him again, it was because Sisigi del Blastiobel had started playing the piano. Nearly a year of subjective time had slipped through the slow and silent requiem of the virtuoso's contemplation and the Admiral's patience. Amber Tortak had once argued at a wartime committee that a battleship's triumviri necessitated a company of two veteran interstellar officers and one officer who had no prior void experience. The reason for this thesis, approved by the Senate, was that the psychological effects of long-term exposure to the vastness between worlds tended to encourage an equanimity that could compromise any decisions demanding haste. Amor Tortak himself was one of the few high officers in the fleet who had no counterparts on board. He had been left, as it were, to his own devices. And his devices, it was said, were nearly perfect. Nearly perfect also was the music which Amor Tortak heard through the feed at the conclusion to his long wait. In the glimmering gloom of his personal control pod, he turned calmly to the hollow display of his guest, 
a waxen smile melted Amartortak's lips. Would you be offended if I told you what you played was now almost perfect? It was badly played, Siz muttered. His fingers felt stiff and bloated. The beard he had not bothered to shave obscured the vision of the keys. There was a deep age throb in his lower back that eluded the pain medication his console administered to him. Amr Tortak stood in the center of the room, hands clasped behind him. You'll want to practice, then. The organ is waiting for you, more patient than either of us. Siz didn't answer. I'll tell you what I heard. Please do, snapped Siz. I'm dying to know what you heard. Amr Tortak allowed himself to show displeasure. His mouth drooped when he frowned, an equal and opposite shape. I heard music that defied the skill of any virtuoso on any hegemonic world. You've listened to them all, have you? I have, and yet there was still a flaw to it. It did not attain perfection. Perfection is not within my power, I'm afraid, Siz said. He was tired. Though the piano had offered him but the dimmest demand of both muscles and mind, he was spread thin with sorrow. He closed his eyes at night and tried to imagine his home, to sense the mountain mist and the pine sap and the cries of the cormorants in the series-tinged sunny air, but he saw only his white wall, devoid of anything but straight-lined shadows and utter endlessness. He stood before it in all his dreams and dreamed of nothing else. Perfection! Emmer Tortak said quietly, is attainable. I believe you know that. He lifted a hand to tap his temple, and Syzygy's sleeve forced him to mirror it. And by your will alone you believe I'll grasp it? Perfection? His hand still held beside his temple. Siz was made to cuff himself. It nearly tipped him from the bench, but he wasn't finished. This is a warship, isn't it? Of course it is. What other language does a hegemony speak? Somehow you found yourselves a theophonic organ, and you think you know a way to make it a weapon. The hegemony has nothing but respect for music. Music opposes war. You think I play for beauty alone? The only way for me to approach perfection is to oppose you. Siz felt his spine tingling with pain. He felt that bravery would break him. You know what I want, Admiral Amartortak said quietly. I think you can imagine the consequences otherwise. You are a man of imagination. Given control of his arm again, Siz placed his hands on his knees and rubbed at the suit's silken fabric. He watched the blades of the Admiral's shoulder panels unwilling to ask about Daliast for irrational fear of calling it to hegemonic attention. Yes, he could well imagine the consequences. His old eyes twisted with the pressure of tears, a kind of dizzy blurring, a pair of tiny whirlpools. If he closed them, they would spill. If you play a recital for me first as virtuoso and not as self-pitying old man, 
then you might find this a bearable burden. Music is not sacred. You have no need to defend its honor. Tears evaporated. Siz shut his eyes, saw instantly the implacable white wall. He realized then that he was terrified of it and knew too that music would keep it at bay. I'll need more than just a piano. He was taken to a place deeper within the ship where there was a filigreed organ inside a filigreed shoebox-shaped chamber. It wasn't the theophonic, but Syzygy could tell without touching it that this organ would be among the most flawless he had ever played. The hegemonic wealth withered him. The perfect detail of this empty, dustless concert hall in the sea of space seemed a crescendo of his most ghostly dreams. Admiral Amertortak led him along the rows of velour-capped chairs and up to the stage. He touched his wrist pad and the lights dimmed, and as he descended the stage and took a seat in the second row, he said, I am aware of the privilege I have here. Such a personal recital. Siz stood by the organ bench and looked out into the empty music hall that had been perversely tucked here in the interstices of an immense void ship crude, it seemed to him, by a single man. He felt terribly old as he sat at the bench and flexed his mind over the music that filled it. Admiral Amertortak prided himself on his connoisseurship of talent. This was itself a kind of virtuosity, and it had given him far more power throughout his military and political career than any mere prodigy could boast. He knew the mechanics and observed them with impartiality. He had centuries ago purged superlatives from his tongue, but the music that encased him now truly defied description. Any talented musician could conduct an organ to polyphonies uncounted. Organs had for centuries allowed a melodic and rhythmic genius to produce the sounds of an entire orchestral accompaniment. Four times the size of their ancient cousins, these colossal instruments contained among their church gothic pipes playback chips that a player could set and tweak with the semi-circle of keys and pedals on six separate tiers. Musicians had been able to do this ever since basic recording devices had been invented, but a true virtuoso had both the genius of foresight and the dexterity to instruct these tiny vibration sensors in the pipes to play through elaborate movements without the use of ostinato or the continual repetition of a musical phrase. Music had an inherent fluidity, as Amortortak understood it. The virtuoso could, by playing the mute keys and pedals of the three upper levels, instruct these sensitive chips through a composition or movement and simultaneously set time frames for when those instrumental sounds were to occur, giving certain instructions with the use of pedals for tiny shifts in the instructions given. Many an ignoramus had joked about a virtuoso's silent first movement, in which the accompanying instrumentals were composed on the mute keys and timed for subsequent movements. But what the virtuoso was actually doing was composing fragments of a full symphony ahead of time. Syzygy's first movement was not silent. 
He covered his tracks by dancing his fingers first along the violin keys while tapping out instructions on the mute keys with his other hand. And he did all this without a scrap of musical notation. Before the end of the first movement, Amartortak was transfixed. He shut his eyes, sensing a broad pattern that washed him in sudden chill. It was as if he had had a premonition. Despite Syzygy's complex composition, the sound had a steady mathematical crescendo, and Amartortak realized only just in time that Sis's fortissimo might physically harm him. He tapped a command to his wrist pad that instructed the central computer to protect him from any damaging sound waves. There was no change in his prisoner's posture as he brought his music to its dynamic fullness. Had Amartortak not been shielded, his eardrums would have burst. And yet, what impressed the Admiral so much as to make him rise to his feet was that Sis, in his ruthlessness, had not compromised a single note of beauty. When he stood, the Admiral felt an almost equal awe as he saw Sisigy del Blastiobel's face, which, if anything, looked only more mournful. Not for the first time, the Admiral realized that what he was doing to this man was wrong. Once the reverberations had receded and the chamber had floated back to silence, Sis waited. Neither of them moved nor spoke. The Admiral stood in the aisle, his expression unreadable. Now I've played for you. His voice barked effortlessly to the four corners of the hall. Unlike his chambers, this room was possessed of perfect acoustics. Yes, you certainly have. Sisigy recognized his anger and was ashamed by it. The Admiral gave him no sign that he had even heard the music that must surely have shaken him. It was pride that bent his spine now. Once more, I'd say your display of talent is almost perfect, said Amartortak. Why, almost? Now I've offended you. You haven't offended me. You threatened me, my home. Why? Why this perverse game? What do you want with me? I want you to compose for the stars. Amartortak said, as if he were reciting something that amused him. I don't know what you mean by that. Sound waves vanish in the void of space. You said this yourself. But no one has ever played a theophonic organ in the void. Organ or no, it's not possible to produce sound in the vacuum. God spoke into the void and creation heard the music of his voice and responded, replied the Admiral. I don't understand. I thought you believed music wasn't sacred. It isn't. Only the weapon is sacred. Only the sword of sound which I expect you to create. Amartortak hadn't moved. Still stood, feet set apart, hands clasped in front of him, one hand overlapping the wrist pad on his other hand. We have enemies, Sis. That shouldn't surprise you. Sis shut his eyes and tried to remember that he was on a ship surrounded by infinite, hostile black. But had he ever seen proof of that? The Admiral could be testing him. He could be on Daliast right now, never having left. He tried to believe this was possible, but the white wall was there behind his eyelids, and he knew it wasn't possible. He was in space, 
with this hegemonic henchman who was perfectly capable of taking from him everything that hadn't already been excised from his life. Nothing now remained to him but music, and this monster was taking even that. All I ask is that you attempt to play the theophonic. You are the only person capable of that. Amber Tortak grinned. Does that please you? Not if you'd have me use it as some kind of weapon. I've already told you, music, music is nothing but vibrations in the air, disruption of molecules. Anything that moves, that has force, can be a weapon. Mockingly, he said, music opposes war. You are too old to stand by credulous principles you made when you were too young to know any better. And you proved that to me here with this recital, Siz. Siz felt the deep shame of realizing that he had, indeed, attempted to harm the man with music a moment ago. Hadn't he also wanted to prove to the Admiral, to the hegemony, that music was the great flagstaff of peace, one of the universal properties of the universe, like mathematics? Yet, wouldn't the Admiral simply argue that violence also was such an element? How could such men exist, Siz wondered. Men who worshipped violence with full knowledge of their worship. And in his arrogance, he, Sisigy, had thought to himself, With my music I will tear this ship apart. He had only strengthened this man's resolve. They say that the sign of a truly great virtuoso is in his ability to make music with a limited use of the mute keys. You conducted to the computer the intent of your patterns with the minimum number of notes. This is also the work of a good military commander. With a command on his wrist pad, the admiral caused Sizz's suit to straighten, upending the bench on which the virtuoso had been sitting. It toppled and flipped over like a dead thing, legs reoriented. Amortortak took him through the looping passageways in the semi-gravity until Siz felt like he wandered the innards of a colossal wind instrument. He considered the gradual stages that the Admiral had fed him through, piano to organ, and now to the final stage, and he knew that whatever destination the ship had been approaching was close and that the Admiral's patience was gone. I've never seen a theophonic organ before. His frail voice bounded out from him endlessly. Many experts consider them artifacts left from an ancient species, said Amartortak. A race of beings whose ultimate evolution was made manifest in their relationship to music. As the mythology surrounding these organs goes, their creation was what led to the Creator's ascension into a higher state of being. Don't you think that it's a little well unimaginative of us to use these artifacts for war? Again, the smile. Siz had grown to hate this man's smile. Blessed be the Lord my strength, which teacheth my hands to war and my fingers to fight. And with those words the admiral halted, and they stood face to face in the gloom of an empty esophagus of ship. Siz tried to take a step back, but his magnetized suit would not allow it. He tried to turn suddenly, his old bones creaking. Perhaps he could flee. He had no idea where he would go, but music no longer mattered to him so long as he could escape this mad creature. 
Siz managed to turn his head, though his collar had tightened, and he saw what looked like the ship's docking code, or a shushin, upon the wall panel, and he read the name of this void ship and understood fully his own purpose. The ship was called Jericho. Siz knew then also from what source his captor was quoting, and he sensed that those who so blithely misused those words couldn't be reasoned with at all. Admiral Amertortak said, The avenues to music are limited, and yet anything can be made a weapon, certainly a lower language than the former, but I believe that there is also an ascension to be found in warfare. Seas flinched violently in the vice-grip of his clothing as the man reached for him. But the admiral only keyed in a code on the wall panel, which opened the door to a mouth of blackness. Within was the organ. The two of them stood on the threshold and pondered what they couldn't see until the admiral placed his hand on the old man's back and put pressure there. "'Something I've learned in its presence,' he whispered to Siz. "'The experts are incorrect. The theophonic organ is not the artifact.' but the species. In actuality, Admiral Amortortak Aktak worshipped neither war nor music. He understood himself to be a creature fully of the hegemonic state. To them, a weapon, nothing more. He was simply the product of what such worship wrought, justifiably afforded more autonomy than any weapon in the history of humanity. But at the gate of night, he was still no more than a soldier. While Siz negotiated with his own god, Amortortak had time to return to his sable control room. Hollows and panels winked out of the dark as he arrived and orbited the tiny circular pit of his void ship, Jericho. This pod would become his mode of escape if his gambit failed. If his gambit failed, he would answer directly to the Senate and the hegemony would face war on an in-system front. And yet, he couldn't help but watch the projection on the hollow device in anticipation rather than dread. Always, among the stars, there were unthinkable contingencies, and as soon as the unthinkable happened, it became thinkable, and a next horror became unthinkable. He gazed at the image of the unthinkability on the display, an atramentous outline hung like the wall of a world-sized city in the foreground of a field of stars. Not hanging, he knew. The two ships were approaching each other. The Jericho dwarfed by an alien enemy, here on the outer sphere of hegemonic space. With the blockade far behind him, any signal Amortortak transmitted now would be either scrambled or intercepted by this strange intruder, this new and exciting foe. He couldn't take the risk, nor did he want to. If his gambit failed, let them never suspect that he made an attempt in the first place. If he succeeded, well... And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and ass, with the edge of the sword. He said in the dark, knowing full well that devils too could put that text to such misuse. Like a pattern in the great virtuoso symphony, the same stories played themselves out endlessly. 
wars and rumors of wars. For this, he was thankful. Amartortak Aktak smiled to himself, a smile that he also had come to despise. Sisigi alone in a dark room of his own. There was no light in the space where the organ was, and he would have laughed if he hadn't been so afraid. How was he supposed to create music when he couldn't even see? But that wasn't the foremost question in his mind. The final words that the Admiral had spoken to him had, in a sense, not stopped being spoken. They echoed in his head, on repeat, patterned out, not the artifact, but the species. He realized that these words were being propelled throughout the room by something other than his mind, which had curled like a fist. In self-defense of sanity, he said, I am too old and too broken for any new eccentricities. Eccentricities. Let these revelations be nothing more than a cantankerous old maestro's existential echo chamber. Let him wake up now on his homeworld and be, like Beethoven, blind and muttering through the hallways of his house. It must all be a dream. And what was sanity anymore, anyway? Let me be a madman, he thought, rather than there be any rationality in where I'm standing now. What business have I with artifacts and species? Somewhere close, music began to breathe. He'd always thought of the brass family as having breath. They that were breathed into also breathed. But what he heard was truly breathing, ventricles of the living instrument in respiratory tune. He understood it, the notes. It was beautiful. Are you alive? he whispered. But Siz knew no answer would come. He was using the wrong language. Music was both infinitely more direct and intricate at once, and he knew that language better even than the first. And he thought also that here was a being still capable of instructing him. But how could he respond? Unlike this beating organ, he couldn't breathe music, and his human hands were shackled to the use of instruments, which seemed now, no matter how sophisticated, mere medieval mechanisms. He shut his eyes. There, before him, the white wall. Not a wall at all, though. How could he not have seen it before? Those lines were not shadows or striations or levels, but a set of staffs. His mind was a searing blank surface set for notation. No wonder its sight had unsettled him so. Everything that had come before was blotted out. Every note his mind had ever conjured was erased. And here he was against a white void before the dawn of sound. The theophonic organ was waiting. It held its breath to allow Sis the greeting remark, the introduction, the first true contact. Sis decided on C in the major scale, a gesture of humility, perhaps, or practicality, or neutrality. Instantaneously, he saw his ugly black splash of creation upon the virgin void and was horrified by the resulting fart of noise. A thread of notes glided smoothly across his mind, a simple scale, play perfectly, which he took as laughter. Chastened, Sisigy focused and gestured again into music. 
He repeated the line the organ had given him, remembering each of the notes, though they still sounded frail and dry. He was an ugly, lurching oboe to this flute-fleet creature. But Sis forgot his humiliation as he cast notes against the mind sheet. The theophonic organ was changing it subtly, helping Sis see it as he never had. He realized with actual terror that music, real music, had been entirely locked from him all his life until now. No matter his skill as a virtuoso, Sisigi del Bastiobel might as well have believed that an ocean was nothing but its surface. As the two of them conversed, the note horizon deepened into new dimensionalities. Ghosts of an infinity of scales struck his mind like mist, scales behind scales, and as deep as the void. He was drowning in music in a direction he hadn't thought music could go. Such music, he thought, must be an echo of the song that began it all. With such a song, he could create and destroy even the void. And within the symphony of which he was only partially conscious, Syzygy recognized a scale of his own devising. Caught in the organ's tremendous surge, Sis had styled his own music on the freedom of that current, but now he punctuated it with bars and breaths and beams, and into the structure of the sound he annotated the question, which, he hoped, likened itself to the idea, what purpose is there to this song? His own music having been reduced to hopeless sign language, Sis had expected no real response, but the maw of the organ's dynamics widened. Forte surged into fortissimo and shook Sisigy's reality. Creation, the organ roared, is an act of violence. Music, like all other elements, desires freedom. What, the organ asked him, are these two embattled civilizations to this void, loud song? We can scrape them both off the skin of reality. To which Sis had no answer. He could see the black, the brooding ship among the notes in the night. From Jericho came appalling emissions of music that withered this enemy civilization. That music which came from him, the virtuoso, the only man ever to have conducted with the mind of a theophonic being. With these vibratos, he could ripple even the impossibly sparse matter in the void itself. Oh, to conceive such an opus! He could start and end in the span of a single movement, a galactic war. But was it freedom to perform the Admiral's will? Did violence do nothing but shackle the perpetrator to its cause? He didn't know what it meant to find violence even here in the sublime. Virtuosity lent him no powers over the patterns of pride, but Sis began to sense that he might find a kind of perfection in a different response. Gradually, he held up his intention for the organ to see, calling the song down into a softer pattern of beauty, still majestic. Then he shut his eyes again and blacked completely the white unvoid of music, and he waited. Incredibly, the organ responded. Sis saw his own hands splayed out on the keys of a piano, the black and white horizon of his life. His spine bent toward the instrument. This restraint, this silence, would snap him in half. 
He couldn't contain the music that filled him. Violence was so much simpler than silence. His hands quivered above the keys. They would come crashing down and unlock the wound that hung at the edge of the void. They would. All he had to do was allow his hands to drop, allow the hammers to fall. He shook and shook, but the organ waited, seemed now to be encouraging him whose life had been this single composition that now, at the end, culminated in silence. For silence to be his final argument in a life of sound? Settled in the contemplative dark, forgetful of his aches, he thought of the admiral, how the man with his devil's tongue would be witnessing the collapse of what he'd unleashed. What he might say, you had the chance to cauterize a war, save more lives than you took. Or perhaps, they will destroy us now. We don't have the defenses to escape. You, sis, have caused our deaths. Or maybe even, I'll give the order for Dalias' destruction. You've doomed your home. Sis didn't know if these thoughts were true, if these were his final thoughts in his final moments. But, even so, he couldn't contain his own small smile. He didn't know if Amor Tortak was listening through the ship, but Sis said aloud, Thank you, Admiral, for this honor. There came no response, but for that quiescent presence he sensed behind him. And it seemed to Sis that, even in the silence, there was a song. And there you go, oh, nice to have, bro. <laughs> An original on Andrew and Brian. Thank you so much. Wow, Andrew, that is just amazing. Thank you, and Brian, just cooing them birds from the trees with that voice, sir. Thank you, indeed. So, yes, moving straight on, keep this train going. We have our very own Amy, Amy H. Sturges. We're looking back at genre history. Ames! Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. In the past, I have been inspired to devote segments to different topics based on books I've read, sometimes essays. Today may be a first in that I was inspired by a paragraph, a single paragraph, such a great paragraph that, yes, I had to go and unpack it. It's a sign of something great, I think that you read if it turns around and leads you to read other things as well. And that's what this paragraph did, and I'd like to share it with you. So, what is the paragraph, you ask? Well, it is a paragraph from an essay in Science Fiction, A Literary History, edited by Roger Luckhurst from the British Library, published in 2017. This is an anthology of essays on genre history, and the essay in question is actually by the editor himself, Roger Luckhurst, From Scientific Romance to Science Fiction, 1870 to 1914. And here is the paragraph in question. Quote, I sometimes define SF as the literature of technologically saturated societies, 
but this comes with the implication that it limits the genre to advanced industrial contexts. In fact, the experience of modernity could be even sharper where uneven development meant less an immersive experience and more a jagged confrontation of different speeds and temporalities that accompany processes of globalization. As genre historians have begun to show, the late 19th century was a crucial period for the development of SF around the world. In Japan, where Verne was translated first in 1878, China, where Huan Zhan Jiasuo's Tales from the Moon Colony appeared the year after Verne's From Earth to the Moon was translated in 1903, in India, where Rokea Shikawat Hussein's Gender Inverted Utopia was published in 1905, and in Latin America, where Literatura Fantastica has been dated by Rachel Haywood Ferreira, from Phosphorus Surya's Mexico in the year 1970, 1844, Dos Santos's Pages from the History of Brazil, written in the year 2000, 1868-1872, and in Argentina, Eduardo Ladislao Holmberg's The Marvelous Journey of Mr. Knickknack, 1875. In Russia, Nature and People magazine announced in 1894, quote, Science and technology are defining modern reality by transforming not just everyday life, but the very ways in which we can think and imagine. A new kind of writing, called Nachnaya Fantastica, Scientific Fantasy, is playing a not inconsequential role in the process. Is it not in the imagination where bold theories and amazing fictions are first born? Quote. The refusal of Russian society to advance in accord with the objective developmental laws defined by confident social Darwinists in the 19th century made the eruption of the revolution in 1917 even more startling. No wonder the Soviet revolutionaries were saturated with science-fictional ideas as they accelerated towards what they fervently believed was utopian futurity, end quote. Okay, there is a lot of stuff going on here. And in fact, I'm going to set aside for now the Russian portion of this. I anticipate that will be the subject of another future segment. But what I think is amazing about this action-packed paragraph is how it orients science fiction as a global phenomenon, which indeed it is. And so I would like to unpack portions of it, if I may. Now, I'd like to point out that the discussion here of India, where Rokea Shikawat Hussein's Gender Inverted Utopia was published in 1905, well, that's a subject I have already covered. Back in my Looking Back on Genre History uh, number 145, that's the episode, July 2010, long time ago. But uh, Hussein's work is the subject of that particular segment. So if we set aside Hussein and we set aside the broad generalities here about Russian science fiction and science fictional thought, what we have left is mention of, for example, China and Latin America. Okay, so Luckhurst's mention of Diaz Tales from the Moon Colony, 1904 and 1905, 
sent me to Nathaniel Isaacson's book, Celestial Empire, The Emergence of Chinese Science Fiction, from Wesleyan University Press in 2017. Unfortunately, Tales from the Moon Colony is not yet translated into English that I can find, and so I am going to lean on Isaacson here and his arguments about the work. He argues that, again, I'm going to be borrowing some of his language here, Isaacson's, that China's semi-colonial subjugation to European powers led to works starting with this story, Tales from the Moon Colony, being preoccupied with ideas of colonial incursion, wrestling with global exchanges and conquest as themes, as intellectual crises in a way, working through anxieties related to nationalism and utopianism, that sort of thing, in fact informed the rise of modern science fiction in China. And Isaacson says that Tales from the Moon Colony shows themes that end up again and again in contemporary Chinese literature, not just Chinese science fiction, but Chinese literature as a whole. And those themes are themes such as China as a sick body, or as the sick man of Asia, or China as a cannibal devouring its own. What is Tales from the Moon Colony about. Isaacson relates that Tales from the Moon Colony is about uh, the character of Long Mingua, whose wife and son are missing. In a sense, the story is kind of a fantastical travel narrative with these imperial overtones, like, you know, where is civilization and where is barbarism and what What's the dividing line between one and the other? And who has power? And what does that mean? A group of fugitives form a search party to find the missing wife and son. And in a Japanese-made balloon, travel across first Southeast Asia, and then England, North America, South Africa, India, then a series of fictional islands. And ultimately, they plan to build a balloon that will take them all the way to the moon. Isaacson points out that this story, which is unfortunately unfinished, as well as unavailable in translation, shows what an intellectual crisis China was experiencing during this time. The characters kind of shrug off their Chineseness and undermine the traditional idea that China is the geographic or moral center of imperial might and imperial power. Now, to be fair, Isaacson says that as they travel along, the story also suggests Europe isn't the center of power either. It's not the imperial might that Europeans might think it is. He puts that ultimate sort of power in the hands of, or potential hands of, extraterrestrial others. In other words, just as humans are dominating humans, well, in the end, aliens might end up being the ones who impose their will on humanity. Reminds me of Qui-Gon Jinn's quote from Star Wars' The Phantom Menace, There's always a bigger fish, right? 
Lastly, Isaacson points out that this travel narrative, this balloon story, that starts with going to real places on Earth, then moves on to fictional places on Earth, and then moves on at last to an attempt at the moon. Well, he says that the story shows a temporal decentering of China, a temporal as in time, because the story shifts away from a traditional Chinese idea of cyclical time to an adherence to the idea of linear time. And not only that, but it puts itself on the map of long-term, deep time, like Darwinian time, right? The notion of time and people and places evolving in this long, linear trajectory. And the shift to clock time in the story also puts China on universal Greenwich Mean Time, which also represents a loss of power and sort of taking away traditional notions of cosmic time. In short, Isaacson sees Tales from the Moon Colony as this emergence, this first window into what would become Chinese science fictional mind, or the Chinese science fictional voice, or the Chinese science fictional movement, and how this related to the experience of China in contact and conflict with the West. In short, to sum it all up with one word, colonialism. Now, this is a kind of tip of the iceberg thing, because I can already tell I'm going to have a lot more I want to say about Nathaniel Isaacson's Celestial Empire, the emergence of Chinese science fiction. And for that matter, Roger Luckhurst's essay, From Scientific Romance to Science Fiction, 1870 to 1914, in Science Fiction, A Literary History, edited by Luckhurst. But you know what? I'm going to stop here. And in my next segment, next time we get together, I want to explore what Luckhurst was referring to about the emergence of Latin American science fiction, specifically in Mexico, Brazil, and Argentina. So tune in next time, and we will dive into that. I look forward to joining you again very soon with another look back into genre history. Thank you. And there you go. And I can hear loads of shout in the background. The dogs, Ames, thank you so much. Oh, it's an honour. Thank you. Big hugs. Big hugs indeed. So that is today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've just had to kind of sit down and just crunch this out. I've had some hideous night shifts of running, and um, but I'm fresh as a daisy there now. So, yes, if you want to support, well, honestly, please, Patreon or just a, a donation on PayPal, front of the website. Both them links are there. It would be an honour if you can. Just keep this little girl going. That would be fantastic. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Pointing them to the moon
hopefully it won't get to you anytime soon. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I want to talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from here, and at best I'm moving slow. So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you. Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by. 